Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is part of a series of events presented online by the Sociology and Criminology Department in the fall of 2020. Dr. Daniel Gascon and Dr. Aaron Roussel were invited to discuss the research for their book, The Limits of Community Policing, on October 6th. The conversation was recorded via Zoom, so please forgive the variations in sound quality. Dr. Clinton Nichols, Dominican University Assistant Professor of Criminology, introduce the program. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for attending today's program, which is uh, The Limits of Policing, a conversation with Dr. Daniel Gascon and Dr. Aaron Roussel. Dr. Gascon is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And Dr. Aaron Roussel is Associate Professor of Sociology at Portland State University. And I am going to be uh, sort of like the host and moderator of today's program. My name is Clinton Nichols. I am Assistant Professor in the Sociology and Criminology Department here at Dominican University. Thank you so much for coming today. And I want to begin our program with a land acknowledgement. So permit me to share my screen and to read a few remarks to you all. I want to start our program with an acknowledgement that we live, recreate, work, teach, and learn on the ancestral lands of indigenous peoples. These groups include, but are not limited to, the Wampanoag, Pinnacock, and Nauset in Massachusetts, as well as the Abenaki and Mashpee, the Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi here in Chicago. And Portland State is located on the traditional homelands of the Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, Watlala Bands of the Chinook, the Tualapin, Kalapuya, and many other indigenous nations of the Columbia River in Portland, Oregon. I hope you'll take a moment to learn more about the historical struggles and contemporary aspirations of these and other indigenous communities. An important step towards a more just society requires facing our collective complicated history so that we can forge a better future together. Uh, our program today is going to involve two presentations. First from Dr. Aaron Roussel of Portland State University Sociology uh, Department, and then by Daniel Gascon of the University of Massachusetts, Boston. After that, we will have a Q&A. So while you are listening to the, uh, to the presentations, feel free to type in uh, potential questions that I then will be uh, pitching to um, our two presenters. 
Dr. Aaron Roussel and Dr. Dan Gascon participated, they conducted basically um, a multi-year study looking at community policing in South LA, in Los Angeles. And so they're going to be speaking to, uh, to their recent co-published ethnography, The Limits of Community Policing. And with that, Dr. Roussel, I invite you to, to take the floor. Danny, I invite you yes. to, to begin, oh, actually. Yes. Oh, sorry, yeah. forgive me. Sorry about that. <laughs> hi, all. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Daniel Gascon. Um, as as uh, your professor just mentioned, uh, thank you. I wanted to send a heartfelt uh, thank you from both Aaron and I for inviting us to do this speech. You know, this book was 10 years in the making. Uh, we're both very happy, very excited to have it see the light of day and, and to share our findings with you because we poured a lot of ourselves into this book. Not only did we become friends along the way, you know, we've been able to build careers out of this book, so uh, we're, we're very excited to share it with you all. So I wanted to start off by, by talking about a notable moment in our fieldwork. You know, we started our fieldwork coming up against the 20th anniversary of the Rodney King riots. This was an explosion after growing tensions of police abuse, uh, over police abuse, systemic racism, marginalization, and exclusion. In addition to sort of broader structural conditions, changes in immigration, depleted economic conditions, and, and broken relationships between the police and the community very broadly, but also uh, with the criminal justice system as well. This moment where a black motorist was, was beaten by four officers, and then uh, the four officers involved in the case a year later were, were found not guilty in a, in a court of law. This was the moment that sort of uh, inspired these sort of events, these scenes that you see here on the top right. And, and what it really did was at the end of the day, it motivated policymakers and police officials to start thinking about ways forward. You know, community policing was becoming more popular from the mid eighties, but it really didn't come to Los Angeles in full force until, until the early nineties, as a, again, as a direct result of the Rodney King riots. The dominant perspective is that you get a number of different corrective strategies that are supposed to help bring the public and the, and the police department back together. Um, the overall view is that from this perspective, within this paradigm, police officers have sort of softer edges. You know, the, they become more approachable, easier to work with. You know, they, they're members that are out in the community as opposed to being, you know, behind a metal and glass of a patrol car. You know, you, you see the image on the right with the officer interacting with the young man there. And it, and it harkens this, this sort of office and friendly narrative, right? You, you, it gives you the image of that 1954 Norman Rockwell painting of the officer, the uniformed officer sitting next to the boy at the lunch counter. But what we found over the course of our work is that this community discourse is really a way to justify the expansion of police power in the city of Los Angeles. The, the strategies for community governance didn't necessarily empower the public. It didn't give the, the public a, 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 like an, an elevated ability to hold officers accountable. Rather, civilians were only led into the partnership only to the degree that they could then perform governmental functions, police functions, and, and sort of produce or carry out crime reduction strategies. The last thing, the last thing we found was a major, a major finding that we, that we uncovered was that all of this talk about community policing assumes that there was a single body, like, a, like one unit in the public that is supposed to pu push forward. Well, that, that one agrees what crime is, and two is supposed to, to mobilize uh, the, the, the police departments and the government's efforts at crime reduction. But what we found is that in areas like South Los Angeles, particularly the neighborhood of Lakeside, because there is a lot of disagreement about uh, what crime is and what constitutes disorder, largely because of the, the nature of the community, it was very difficult to move those, those uh, policies, those initiatives forward. 
So we spend, we spend the, the rest of this piece sort of talking about, about what we found. We were writing against the, this backdrop in policing scholarship where the assumption is that community policing is the, the third wave, this, this new mode of evolution in, in US policing. But what we found is that community policing emerged and, and really the government's calls for greater community involvement and, and a closer relationship between police and the public really emerged after these, these huge episodes of collective violence in urban centers throughout the country, throughout history. The assumption is often that state civilian collaborations are supposed to improve the state's legitimacy, to bring members of the public into the fold so that they take part in, in policing the community. However, what we found was that this often resulted in the expansion of enforcement and regulatory capacities. Right? We, we, we align our thinking with, with works that sort of highlight the evolution, the growth of militarization in police forces, the increased use of crime language, or uh, of community language and its contrast in contrasting images with crime and, and urban, the urbanness as a sort of primary mode for thinking about the crime in the contemporary moment. We also think about how uh, these movements toward the expansion of police powers really facilitated the uh, mass incarceration, right? The structures, that, structures of punishment that we're seeing at the moment. Community-based policing initiatives are supposed to integrate the public into police functions. Right. That is the assumption, that is what people understand, but, but what most people don't know is that that involves civilians becoming members of the police department and, and becoming agents for the department rather than the reverse, rather than the police becoming sort of mouthpieces for some sort of public movement. Um, and, and often, and again, what, what we see in a, a number of studies have shown that anytime you have communities that are undergoing significant and rapid social change, you don't really have a whole lot of agreement. The possibility for conflict you know, goes up, goes through the roof. To give you a sense of a place that we're talking about, you know, we, we call the neighborhood that we studied the Lakeside Division. Uh, it's called a division because that is the name that the police department gives it. Right? This is a, essentially a grouping of census tracts. It's not a natu naturally occurring neighborhood or naturally occurring community. It's just a collection of census tracts that the department uh, labeled a police division. It's also one of the most strained divisions in the entire city, has some of the highest uh, property, but particularly violent crime rates. And when the Cal gang system was in full operation and had the largest concentration of identified gang members in the entire city. What we know about the Lakeside division at the current moment is that it's almost, it's almost split between black and Latino populations. But this, is, this has sort of created a tense current moment, right? This used to be the heart of black Los Angeles. A lot of what's feeding into, at least from the Black community's perspective, uh, towards Latino in-migration is, that, is, that, is like anti-immigrant anti sentiment and nativist sentiments that sort of assume that the Latino population is, is taking over the large slice of the pie that's available for, for, for folks in the, this neighborhood. And then you get tensions as a result. And I'm happy to talk more about that if, if folks have questions. Um, but really what, what the Rodney King riots did was highlight a number of racial dramas that were playing out throughout the city of Los Angeles from the mid or from the mid 80s into the 90s. You had the shooting death of a young black girl, Latasha Harlins, by a Korean shopkeeper. You also had an increase of black and Latino gang violence and drug crime, and and an increasing an increasing number of calls from the black and Latino community for control of police abuse and misbehavior and misconduct. This. Uh, slide is a representation of one of our chapters. We trace the historical evolution of community policing throughout the city of Los Angeles and really 
understand community policing as an outgrowth of some of those social movements I was mentioning before. We focus on three riots in the city of Los Angeles in particular, the um, Zoot Suit riots as it's known um, popularly in 1943, the Watts riots in 1965, and the Rodney King riots in 1992. You'll notice the asterisk, uh, but this, this is because this report came out after came out before the riots, but was instrumental in shaping the department's response afterward. Um, probably the most significant thing for us to pay attention to is that, is that very bottom row. Vitaly talks about how there are four different pillars of liberal police reform, and there are these number of cycles. He sees that there are either, it's either a moment of misconduct or a scandal that sort of motivates the departments to make like wide reaching policy changes. But what we found is it had to do with, again, collective acts of violence uh, in urban centers. The bottom row points out how there are very similar but slightly evolving, increasingly bureaucratic approaches to try and bring the public and the department closer together. Uh, initially, these were organized around building like what, what they called the Deputy Auxiliary Program, which was like a youth cadet program they established in the 1940s. But by the time uh, Charlie Parker came along, that program went away. There was also an effort to try and establish an interracial council, but it never materialized because they, the department and the city government couldn't recruit enough people. 1965, you get the reemergence of or the rejuvenation of the deputy auxiliary program and the creation of team policing. Uh, team policing was, was like the first iteration of, uh, of trying to bridge the gap between police and, and the public. And in 1992, you get the reju literally the rejuvenation of team policing. Police, community policing was sort of rewritten as, as a new policy, sort of using this updated language, but there was nothing, there was the, it, was, it was essentially built on the same framework of team policing that had existed in the decades before, but went away because of leadership, because leadership sort of didn't believe in its utility in, an, in a moment when you had escalating rates of violent crime. So this is how we collected our data. We, collect, we conducted ethnographic field work and, and wrote field notes uh, together. Well, we, collect, we did the data collection together, but wrote separately. Um, and we observed all of these different sites, um, not only community meetings, that was, that was primarily our, our, our site uh, of observation, but we also went to a number of different arenas where police and civilian collaborators came together. We also conducted interviews with key stakeholders throughout, uh, or folks who are participating in, in these kinds of meetings and folks who have a stake in its success. And we also looked, uh, as I just mentioned a, min a minute ago, at, at internal LAPD archives, particularly policy memos that help to define what the department understood as community policing versus team policing versus some of these other programs that I was mentioning. Just so you get a brief sketch of what the meetings that we're dealing with, we, we observed both English and Spanish meetings. The English meetings tended to be somewhat larger. They were more structured. They, had, they were more organized. They had a leadership group. Um, folks were, who were participating in those were, were doing so more consistently. Folks in the Spanish meeting, it was, you know, it, the meeting fluctuated. Anytime there was a significant event in the community, for instance, like a sweep that was perceived as an immigration raid, you know, you would get a lot more folks in the room. Um, similarly, the number of officers fluctuated depending on these kinds of events in the community. For the most part, the Spanish meetings had almost no slows. You only had the one captain show up and facilitate the meeting as an educational forum. In the English meeting, the captain required senior lead officers to show up, give their crime update, talk about what they had been doing in the previous month, again, because there was more structure and organization to that meeting. So I'm going to talk about uh, one of the chapters that we, that we cover in, in the book, uh, looking at, at the process of complaints and how police handle them in meetings, because these are these we believe are one of the main building blocks of the partnership groups themselves. 
And Aaron is gonna build on this and talk about police interventions in the business community. So essentially what we found is that, again, complaints are just one of the building blocks. They're, they're the, the, the part of the meetings that are supposed to give you the sense of partnership from the very beginning. Right? This is how you develop a mutual understanding, a mutual set of goals, and help, help residents identify the problems that are important to them. This is you know, the, the moment when a resident complains, an officer says we have the tools available and they can turn around and uh, put some in sort of enforcement measure into place, you know, that is, is a clear cut example of, of co-production, right? That's, that's where you see social order being co-produced. At the same time, these complaints reveal these moments of disunity in a space that was otherwise very collaborative and cooperative, right? There were moments when, when residents were complaining about, about uh, the police, or what they were doing or what they weren't doing. So what we found essentially was that what was being produced in these complaints was a discourse of police ability, right? The likelihood that a complaint would result in police action on behalf of a civilian. So the first example that we get comes from Mr. Palmer. This is an elderly black man who was a longtime LA resident, South LA resident, a longtime uh, community meeting participant. And he was a very well-respected figure in the meetings, very serious person. You know, he would complain about, about specific issues. He would say, you know, I've got these illegal auto sales in my, on my block. What are you guys able to do? Um, in this instance, the senior lead officer uh, mentions that he can work in collaboration with the neighborhood prosecutor. And they have a ready-made process through which to, through which to sort of uh, respond to these kinds of complaints. You know, they can run VIN numbers, make sure that they have proof of insurance. If not, then they can work with another city agency to impound the vehicles. And then that, that's, that's how you can sort of push forward enforcement efforts. In other instances, there were, the response was a lot more complex. You have the instance of, of Ms. Carter, who uh, she was like Mr. Palmer, elderly black resident, a longtime resident of LA and a longtime participant in these meetings. Um, she was one of probably the most vocal complainants about the issue of street bending, which was a highly racialized issue. In, in English meetings, you had black residents complaining largely about, about Latino vendors in the city of LA. You know, it's, it's difficult to say whether to what extent Latinos pervade street bending throughout the city, but at least in this neighborhood, that's, that was the nature. That was the sort of general understanding. You know, it involved mostly Latino participants. And residents like Ms. Carter would often complain about noise pollution, about the potential for, for health, uh, health problems, you know, because, because food is being kept in unsanitary conditions or people being forced to, to go out into traffic because these folks are out you know, on, on the sidewalks taking up all kinds of space. And you can see here by the nature of her complaint that, that again, she's sort of calling attention to the racialized elements, right? The racialized food uh, that, they're, that they're selling or offering. The response that Ms. Carter gets from the captain is, is one of uh, empathy, but uh, ultimately, you know, he sort of sweeps them, he sweeps her complaint aside saying that, you know, there's just not a whole lot we can do at the moment. Um, initially, at the early stages of our field work, the department was a lot more active in responding to these kinds of complaints. They organized sting operations, you know, they were, they were arresting and ticketing vendors. But by the end of our field work, this was no longer seen as a, a good use of officer time. And, and police officials were asking residents to be patient and were really calling attention to, you know, they were, they were put, they were positioning vending within the larger triage process of, or prioritization process that officers have, right? They're, they're trying to say, look, you know, this is one of the highest crime areas of the city. We've got a lot more serious crimes to do with than, than vending. So you know, we, we can, we'll get to it when we can, but we might not always, we might not be, always be able to handle it in the ways that, that residents want. Uh, 
this was, it, it ended up being a very complex um, set of circumstances to police. And, and if you look at the city of LA now, street vending is for all intents and purposes completely decriminalized. So the situation has, has changed rapidly. Lastly, you get another uh, a set of complaints that come from, that are most visible in, our, in this instance, um, in the Hispanic outreach, but also showed up in the English meeting as well. And it was, it was these complaints about the, the sort of lack of utility or how, how not useful going to meetings was because residents did not feel that their complaints were being policed. Often you had uh, captains going into these meetings, asking for residents to take greater part in, in shaping law enforcement priorities. But, and again, residents just felt like their complaints weren't going anywhere. Part of it had to do with the nature of the Spanish meeting, the, the way that the captain would run it was more of an educational forum, as I mentioned before. You know, they would, he would clarify processes, a lot, you know, broader governmental processes, answer questions about, you know, what law enforcement actions are doing. Sometimes residents would, you know, when there was a, a DUI checkpoint, some residents were fearful, assuming that it was an immigration stop um, and officers would have to sort of disabuse them of that notion and explain, well, this is, this is what purpose these raids serve or these, these checkpoints serve, you know, they're not, they don't have anything to do with, with checking people's immigration status. But often what you would get is you sort of see a lot of this tension. This is a relatively calm moment, right? But there was a lot more back and forth in other exchanges of residents being very frustrated that they're not really getting any of their complaints dealt with. It very seldom did you see slows coming into these meetings and reporting on the enforcement efforts that they had engaged in in the previous month. That was much more common in the CPAB and the English meeting. And, and that, had, that sort of fed into the frustration that residents felt about the inaction that police were taking on their complaints. All right, Aaron, I will turn it over to you, my friend. All right, first of all, thanks. First time you see my face, my name is Aaron. Uh, my pronouns are he and him and his. And I wanna thank Danny, Clint and Patrick who's running things behind the, behind the scenes there. Um, yeah, we called this chapter No Place for the Mom and Pops. And I think while most of the attention, most of the things that police do to get attention, right, is paid to the violence that's committed, the study of taser deployment, the study of the use of force, uh, shootings of unarmed residents. But I think police have always played a much larger role in urban governance than we conventionally think and talk about. And community policing has in many ways expanded this. A defining feature of post-industrial government is the creation of, and I'm going to use air quotes if you can see me, I'm not sure, uh, collaborative problem-solving structures, right, which harkens back to some of the language Danny talked about earlier. And these things seek to maintain a hospitable environment for business. So under this schema, right, police become anointed as experts. They're experts in knowledge risk security on matters of crime and urban affairs. They get to shape urban spaces and balance personal and business behavior at the same time. That's a lot of power that we're sort of seeing emerge. In other words, uh, police are key to what used to be called urban renewal, and now we call it gentrification. In 92, the program, the, the, the city idea that kind of came down was called Rebuild LA. Whereas after the Watts Rebellion, the concern was to benefit the people of South Los Angeles, right? It really brought the war on poverty to South LA for the first time through job training and development and all kinds of programs that would help the people there develop. In 92, the concern is much more to develop business and increase private investment. That's what Rebuild LA was about. And in fact, a key part of the 1992 plan was to produce and use a civil gang injunction to crush the 18th Street gang. And what I think is kind of interesting about that fact is that the unit that executed that injunction was the Rampart Crash Unit, um, which itself operated as a gang, running drugs, 
practicing extortion, torturing and murdering residents. Um, I mean, this was the reason that LAPD fell under federal consent decree, not the Rodney King uprisings, but the Rampart scandal. So you can see how these things kind of work together. So we noticed in our, in our research uh, was that Lakeside's division had a couple of core business missions. They wanted to implement and maintain a controlled and predictable marketplace. And they wanted to um, promulgate and anchor a security network, right? They wanted to be the, the people that sort of ran and were clued in to the security for business in the area. So in so doing, they had a couple of tools at their disposal that they used. And the ones that we wanted to focus on here, particular strategies and tactics, is a story or a set of stories that was told to sort of justify this, this neighborhood transition. One of the most powerful ones they used was this trope of the mom and pop shops and the narrative of the bad old days. Both of these are racially coded, as, I'll, as, I'll, as we'll uh, sort of show you, and they're historical narratives about what happened. So first, let's talk through how it is that Lakeside integrates and, and accesses and utilizes the business community in, in Lakeside. Um, the Lakeside Boosters, it was a 501c3 that the captain created while we were there. They were super effective at soliciting donations. The sidebar here shows that this has become standard practice. Um, hundreds of thousands of private dollars are invested in local police forces, and there really is no oversight over this whatsoever. You know, I was in Detroit uh, a few years back and all of the police cars had, you know, one headlight missing or a window cracked or something um, because the city couldn't afford, because it, it's Detroit and they went broke, to, to outfit the police department. Ford steps in and outfits the entire department with new cars. Again, there's no, there's no check on this. It's just what's happening. While we were there, we, we found uh, donations from Chase Bank, the Bank of America, McDonald's, Rite Aid, Ralph's, Walgreens, all of which were earmarked for various equipment and programming. And so that's the high level connections that are made. But now once you've done that, you have to do the street level connections. And that's what the business card was about. So Robert Smith was the community relations officer who was in charge of the business car with a couple of other people. Um, they provided a general interface to business, a direct line for officers who were sympathetic to business concerns, greater resources for responding to crime and disorder at these locations. There was a quarterly meeting, you know, which is interesting because like what, what else in policing is quarterly? This is aligned around the business ideal. It's funny, they, they tried this in the past and they you know, sort of passed the hat at the meeting saying, hey, we want some donations. No one returned because no one likes to be shaken down for money at a meeting. Um, and so they had a new rule, no, no shakedowns, right? We're not gonna ask nobody for money at the meeting. This is only for security concerns. You know, and so they sort of play the corporate game Doing, doing so really helps, I think, separate out what we would have called corruption, right? In the previous incarnations of policing, you know, the crude kind of kickback, the formalized corruption. But what it creates is a dedication to the general identification strategy, right? So it becomes a way of sidestepping that concern and continuing to represent business interests as a whole. Okay, so there are a couple of ways that knowledge risk security plays out in, in Lakeside at least. We chose Officer Phil Hackett as kind of the emblematic concern of the regu of regulation, the regulator. He's the regulator. You know, he uh, 
focuses his patrols on creating sort of de facto no-go zones, right, around liquor stores and convenience stores to maintain this orderly marketplace. Strong enforcement priorities against fragrancy and prostitution, uh, liquor stores, cannabis dispensaries, which is an interesting thing since, you know, both of those things are, are officially legal. So he would, he would take it upon himself to, 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 to file motions to harass customers at liquor stores, at cannabis collectives, to, has, to hassle street workers. Um, he created his own little exclusion zones. Liquor stores in particular were, are the favorite target of officers since they are thought to increase crime and violence, right? And the same logic was translated over to cannabis dispensaries. You know, and I want you to lock this in for now. Hackett in particular focuses on Black-owned liquor stores. In doing ride-alongs with Hackett, he would point out as we would drive along, you know, this one is a Black-owned store. This one is a Latino-owned store. How do you know? Um, and he would tell a narrative about the history of the neighborhood. He's like, well, in 92, all of those liquor stores had their windows busted out. And so all the people that remember that are mostly Black people. And they brick up their windows to keep that from happening. The ones where you would see actual glass, those are owned by Latinos and by Asian people of various, you know, so like he has this whole racial schema mapped out in his head based upon what he's seeing as he drives down the road. His focus is specifically on his own geography. He'll arrest if he feels like it, but he often just sort of shivvies his targets over the line into a different division, sort of a NIMBY ethic. It's a difficult thing to take, a difficult approach to use with a brick and mortar business. Um, and so he focuses a lot of time on filing motions to get liquor stores out. And the quotes that I have here on the screen, you know, he drove us past a complex and he calls it, this is where the I hate Phil Hackett club lives. Um, city planners consulted him personally and said, listen, we're going to put it in a new middle school. Where do you think it should go? In, in essence, what part of the city should we raise, get rid of in order to put in this middle school? He didn't hesitate to select a low income, mostly black housing complex. And so the city raised it, relocated the residents. And then he's happy with the new housing because more, as he puts it, more Mexicans have moved in. Right, and the people he's displaced are not very fond of him. Um, so that's that's one way to think about regulating space under a business ethos. Another way is emblema uh, emblematic by uh, Marge Sierra. Right, we we call her the advocate. Other ways to perform knowledge, risk, security, expertise. Unlike Hackett, uh, Sierra placed a much greater emphasis on community involvement in crime control, claiming at num at number of times uh, it's a proven fact that involvement from the community brings down crime. So you would think her approach would involve incorporation of community comments into her operations. Yet the community involvement that she prefers makes, she makes definite choices about who counts as community. Um, the example that we use is Dan Venkatesh's 7-Eleven. So he wants to open a franchise in, uh, in Lakeside. And so the sticking point becomes the liquor license because 7-Elevens make a lot of their money off selling beer and wine. And let's remember back to, Hart, to Hackett's approach to regulating liquor stores, particularly Black-owned liquor stores. Um, so with LAPD's help, Venkatesh devises a strategy for cutting through the bureaucratic red tape to get his license. Marge's reasoning here is that Venkatesh, unlike owners of the mom-and-pop shops, the promise of the 7-Eleven is to bring the community new legitimate, and she uses this word a lot, businesses, jobs, and a safe, a safe shopping environment. So there's a whole zoning hearing that goes on, and it turns out that a whole bunch of the community shows up um, and they are not in favor of this. They're testifying before the, the zoning hearing and they're, they're saying, listen, we don't want another place that sells beer and wine on this block. We already have five or six on this block already. Why do we need another one? Why do we need a place that sells salty, awful things to eat when what we need is more access to fresh vegetables and fruits? Sierra explains to those people uh, that although they sell alcohol, the 7-Eleven should inspire confidence and not fear, right? And this is 
an interesting tack to take, right? During a business car meeting, in fact, a local liquor store owner who works really closely with police talks about his store as a community store rather than a liquor store. So the strategy is to incorporate LAPD into the business plan. Um, Dan, come, Dan Venkatesh comes to community police meetings regularly. He presents himself bringing donuts, bringing sandwiches, having a whole uh, shtick ready to, to, to perform on the spot. What am I going to do? Here's what I'm going to do. Boom. You know, sort of platformed by Robert Smith, actually, the, the crow from before, and, and Margie Sierra. You know, using LAPD's approval, he also visits local churches. They don't like the idea, but they, they understand that LAPD is on board, so they're like, fine, I'm not going to oppose it. They sit down with him and plan out his security strategy. They call their cronies at the private security company, they recommend hours, they recommend guards to be hired for these hours, cameras, lighting, other security features, all on Dan's dime, of course. And so Margie not only writes letters of support for the zoning hearing, but attends in person. Um, and so all of the actual community members give their testimony, and then she's, she gives her testimony to the, the zoning hearing official, right? We don't make those people go to those locations and buy alcohol, which is an interesting attitude for a, a cop to take. Um, she's been a slow for 30 years. She sees the area go from a ghetto to a nicer area, noting that it also went from mostly black to three quarters Latino. 7-Eleven gives the area a different look. All the stores there now are mom and pop shops. People want to see known names instead and won't stop at mom and pop shops out of fear. How true is it that the sale of beer and wine contributes to local crime? Asks the regulator. Do those stores become magnets for nuisance? Phil Hackett would have said in a different context, yes. But here, Marge answers no. So what I think this helps to illustrate is the police craft specific historical narratives of community that correspond to race, class, and corporate interests. Carol Greenhouse and her colleagues have suggested that community residents' understanding of history is more about their social values than any strict adherence to like an event chronology, the thing that we think of as history on this date this happened, right? We argue the police are doing this too, but they have a great deal of power to weaponize their vision. When we look at this narrative and the missions that this narrative is attempting to implement. So a, a, a controlled predictable marketplace, the installation of a security network schema that's, that's anchored by police. These are knitted together by a historical narrative that police deploy in the same way that Hackett uses his expert authority to evict black residents. This historical narrative revolves around three major transitional elements, race and ethnicity, crime and the crime decline, and external respectability, right? First is the demographic shift. It's always talked about as a black past and a Latinizing future, right? So when Marge Sierra talks about it's gone from a ghetto to a nicer area and simultaneously notes the demographic composition change through which, let's be real, LAPD has had some hand in affecting. Estimates are about 14% of people in South LA have actually been forcibly migrated using the criminal legal system to incarceration facilities. So you have this restricted labor market, hostile to blue collar unionized jobs that, play, that pay citizens a living wage. You have a carceral state that displaces residents. And so you, and you don't usually talk, the cops don't usually talk about this part of it. The shifting labor needs seems to have indicated that this area is gonna be more hospitable for Latinx people. This is a tractable labor force that is held hostage by its immigration status very often. So this, Demographic shift is not simply a neutral thing. It's a thing that's being orchestrated and ushered in by corporate interest. At the same time, there has been this local and national crime decline. Despite what, what Trump has talked about, right? We are in the midst of the longest sustained drop in citizen homicides. So homicides committed not by police officers in recent history. 
And so we talk about this violent past and this peaceful, productive future. So again, transitionary elements. And then the final piece is this different look, a different look versus the mom and pop shops, right? A local past, a local past that is scary and violent and black versus a corporate future that makes use of Latinx labor, right? Makes use of, um, is a peaceful, is a peaceful future, is a Latinizing future. And this, elements of this story pop up so very often in our fieldwork. So the story about the bad old days um, and the glorious future of South LA, you know, without black shop owners and with the Latinx labor force that is sort of tightly controlled through immigration enforcement. So I'm gonna turn it back over to Danny to do some conclusionary material and then I'm gonna rip off that uh, after he's done. So I'm gonna keep it on the screen and I'll advance slides for Danny, so go right ahead. You wanna advance it? There we go. Um, so what we find ultimately is that, as I was mentioning before, that police can sort of choose to classify and categorize residents in a certain way. They can choose to cooperate with certain residents and, and based on the nature of their complaints. But then given the interaction that the captain has with Ms. Carter, you see that there is a, a definite there, there is a definite relationship or, or a definite uh, instance in which police are controlling or, or diffusing certain complaints because they aren't policeable. Maybe there is another government agency that's more appropriate to handle that given complaint. Maybe it's just completely outside the purview of police responsibility. Maybe it could be that police just don't have the, the, the resources at that particular station to handle that particular complaint. You know, there could be a number of different reasons why someone's complaint could be swept aside. And the last thing that's important about that chapter is how much uh, resistance sort of reveals the cracks in partnership or the, the veneer of partnership that community policing is often assumed to have. One of the problems with partnerships in this context is that you cannot simply be a person to complain and raise and question the utility of these meetings and continue to go. You, you'd be increasingly frustrated, those complaints would fall on deaf ears. Um, often people who are in that situation end up just not, you know, they, they, they discontinue their participation in the meetings. And then you really don't have those kinds of, of voices who would otherwise be strong voices for, for certain complaints in the community. Um, with respect to police involvement in, in business interventions, um, you definitely see how police have a hand in, in promoting municipal redevelopment in the city, right? The, uh, there was this push, as, as Aaron was mentioning, after the 92 riots to try and beautify certain sections of, Los, of South Los Angeles, but that you know, the, the, the degree to which those redevelopment efforts reached the, the public uh, are, are extremely limited. Instead, what it did was reshape the ways that an apartment would approach certain kinds of crimes in the community. Um, one of the things that they did was in, in terms of helping to tell the story of this neighborhood, particularly when we see police and residents in, encountering in, in like a zoning hearing, like the, like the instance of, of Mr. Venkatesh's store, you see these instances where police are trying to reshape the historical trajectory of the neighborhood, right? Where it's moving from this, this perceived black dangerous past into a safer, more organized, more orderly Latino present or future. Um, and, that, and, that's, and that's how the trend is sort of going to evolve the public. And that's the sort of narrative, the story that officers tell about that history. The last thing to, to take away from police involvement here is that they're trying to create this very predictable, hospitable marketplace for businesses to, to, to operate in. But by the same token, they want to make sure that they're, that they're inserting police within the center of all of the security mechanisms that the, that the business would rely upon. So within that zoning hearing, for instance, that, that Aaron was talking about, the, the police were 
they worked with Mr. Venkatesh to outline, these are the security measures you need. You need cameras, you need lights, you need this or that. You need to make sure that you have two employees working at this kind of time because we know that these kinds of crimes happen, right? Police are, are very much involved in sort of cir circumscribing the operations of that business. But not only that, they also are the, the, the ones that are primarily involved in in responding to, to uh, problems within the business community in an, in an informal way, in the ways that, that uh, Officer Hackett does, but in also informal ways that, that we see uh, Margie operating. Lastly, uh, before, before I turn it over to Aaron again, I wanted to talk about some potential alternatives. You know, one of the things that we saw with this program is that community policing is, is the concept, the idea, the philosophy that's, that has been talked about as like the savior, the thing that's gonna bring us into a more harmonious racial future. But what we found is that that's not the case. And part of it is because it is, is the role, the limited role that the public has in shaping police priorities. So in, in my own, in my own uh, dealings with, with sort of uh, broader governmental practices that also aim to bring the, the public into the fold of government, I found two primary examples that could serve as alternatives. So one is Oakland's Police Oversight Commission that was established, I wanna say in 2015 or 16. And one of the ways that they, that they do try to increase civilian power in these forums is by ensuring that half of the participants in the commissions are elected uh, community members. The group that helped to put this, this entire commission on the ballot was what a lot of people might consider anti-police, but you know, it's just like a police reform, a community-led police reform effort that, that sort of helped to, to put that on the ballot. But then there were other programs like the ones here, the APTP group, who were much more involved in, in sort of crafting the second bullet point, right? Giving this organization teeth. The biggest problem with police oversight commissions in the past has always been that they do not have the power to remove officers or the chief of police, but this one does. Right. This is one of the biggest differences. It's what makes it a, a stronger uh, commission altogether. Another way to think about government and uh, government's involvement in correcting for or, or improving police and civilian relationships is, is things like Boston's involvement in organization of a Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission. Boston is one of, one of three cities. I believe it's also San Francisco and Portland. Is that right, Aaron? Maybe not, maybe. I have a lot to say about that. You go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they're one of the three cities around the country that uh, I know of at the moment that are organizing these truth and reconciliation commissions. And what these are supposed to do is unlike truth commissions in the past, which are just like fact finding missions, this is prosecutor led. The entire purpose is to uh, result is to create convictions of people who have done some kind of misjustice or who have exacted some sort of an injustice uh, toward uh, the public. The, the novelty with these commissions is that, they, is that they're focused on these very broad ranging issues that have to do with social and racial injustice. In the city of Boston, for, in, for instance, we have uh, historically had issues with segregation and busing and housing, uh, and also, it, but also police violence in, in, the, in a broad sense, just like other urban centers. Um, the hope is that these kinds of commissions would, would have, again, like, like the first commission, have teeth. Right, the ability to sort of identify people who have done something wrong and then, and then put some kind of legal measure in, pra in practice to help uh, hold them accountable. Okay, much like Danny has been attempting to take the insights that we've gleaned and apply those forward, I've been trying to do the same thing. So what I wanted to do was, I don't want to spend too much time on this since we're running out of time, but I did want to emplace community policing within the larger law enforcement strategy. One of the things Danny really did pointed out at the beginning, right, was 
highlighting the same sets of reforms being used over and over, right? But nothing seems to change. And in fact, we're at 100 years on past the beginning of the progressive era, right? In theory, we should have refined this down to a thing that's utterly uncontroversial. And yet 2,000 cities and towns this summer exploded in protest. In fact, in Portland, we're on 100 days, more than 100 days of continuous protest. So clearly these reforms have not worked. So I want to talk through a little bit as to what this is about. There has been a strong relationship of social and physical technology transfer between police and the military. And I think this begins right about with the beginning of community policing. Federal programs like the 1033 program facilitate military equipment to civilian police forces. And I think we're all kind of dimly aware that this has been happening. Berkeley gets a Bearcat, right? Why does Berkeley need a Bearcat? Unclear. All kinds of uniform shifts and tactical shifts and weaponry shifts. But what I want to highlight is the idea that counterinsurgency, a, a strategy used by the U.S. military, is functionally analogous to community policing. If we think of the coercion strategy of the U.S. military as invasion, a strike, a war, the strategy, the, the traditional strategy of municipal police is command and control, right? When you read the transcripts of the 92 uprisings, what you hear is we have lost, we've lost control. We've lost command and control. Everything that we do is pitched towards this and we have lost this. Um, community policing, much like counterinsurgency, is the way to go in and build bridges with moderates and crush insurgency in ways that maintain the legitimacy of the occupation. Community policing uh, is a very similar thing. And I don't, I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. Documents from the RAND Corporation demonstrate the ways in which counterinsurgency strategies of the U.S. military are essentially repackaged community policing strategies. They're using the technology, the social technology overseas now that we've developed here at home as though it were a success. We even saw evidence of this with our own eyes. Some of the community policing officers that we worked with were called up as army reservists to go and train people in Iraq and Afghanistan how to do community policing. Only over there they call it counterinsurgency. So what do I mean by this? As we proceed forward in this, 2020 is a weird year, y'all. I think we all know this. I want to sensitize you to the way that this cycle runs so that you will be a little bit cynical as you hear things that come out. As Danny pointed out, there's an instant violation, which like with, the Rodney, with Rodney King, there is a spectacular moment, but that moment was only spectacular because it was caught on film. That, was, that stood on the top of a large pyramid of abuse. Instant violation is captured. What happens? Publicity, media, organic movement. There's maybe a protest happens. Maybe there's a hashtag. There's a march, perhaps. What then happens? Police statements, denial or minimization of complaint. Let's wait for all the facts to come out, that kind of thing. The next thing that comes up is a public venting session. And we've been to many, many, many of these. What do those venting sessions do? For the public, there is a sense of catharsis, right? It drains energy from the protest. But what's going on simultaneously is the police are assessing the strength of the opposition. They're identifying activists, they're tracking them and making sure they can figure out exactly how much territory and, and how much they're gonna have to give up in order to maintain their legitimacy. And so in that vein, there has been a playbook that has emerged over the past many decades from which they pull various things. Um, and I'll go into that in a second. But the, as that playbook is engaged, 
this is what happens. There's first there's right wing pushback and we're seeing that now. Take the handcuffs off police. We want reform, take the handcuffs off police. It serves to, to drain the movement. Time, you know, the time between the instant violation and how much later it is, right? So there's, there's, the, there's the anger and there's the, the energy to march. People take, you know, they sacrifice other important things in their lives to be on the streets. The further from that violation you get, the, the more difficult it is to mobilize the numbers that you need to continue sustain, to sustaining this movement. Mobilization becomes more difficult, protests dwindle. The media moves on. The public, which, which often pitches itself to what the media is talking about, moves on. The reforms that have been proposed become weakened, they become stalled, they become undermined. Very often, little or no institutional change is created and normal policing continues, right? That's, that's the basic cycle of what happens. Um, we saw that with Amadou Diallo, we saw that with any number of, I mean, we, we saw that with Ferguson to a certain extent. Practices there are a little different, but not, Ferguson is not a fundamentally different place than it was before. So here's the, the playbook, a little bit of it, since we've seen a lot of this face-to-face uh, -face in LA. There's going to be an investigation. If there's, and all of this is contingent upon sufficient public pressure, because nothing, nothing happens without that. Investigation, there'll be an internal investigation. So much like the Rampart Board of Inquiry was a bunch of people from LAPD saying, what happened? There'll be an internal investigation. There'll be an external investigation, maybe, right, if there's sufficient pressure. The external investigation is usually conducted by police adjacent organizations. So here on my campus, when police killed two people, one of whom was an unarmed black man who was trying to break up a fight, actually, they chose Margot Healy, which is comprised of former police officers and people who are making a living off of their expertise in policing. At the Occupy, at Occupy um, in 2011 in Davis, the pepper spraying incident of all the students. Who comes in to investigate that? Curl Security Group. Curl Security Group is run by former police chief Bill Bratton and former NYPD chief Bill Bratton. Citizen civilian review, review boards, Danny's talked about why those are frequently very toothless or co-opted. You know, if things go really far, and this is the absolute legal limit, you'll produce a lawsuit or the threat of a lawsuit. And sometimes the result of that is a, a federal consent decree where the Department of Justice oversees for a while aspects of the municipal police force. Happened in Portland in 2012 when police were shooting mentally ill people right and left. I don't know that things have really improved. Portland, as I said already, has undergone more than 100 continuous days of protest because of police brutality. Other legal checks that, that sort of are grasped at. Limiting specific practices. Uh, Chokeholds have been limited in some jurisdictions now. Um, although, you know, the one that killed Eric Garner, that was already not okay, and the officer didn't see any discipline. Here in Portland, uh, they banned tear gas, unless you declare a riot. So now the bar for declaring a riot has dropped, and tear gas continues to be deployed. Admission of irregularity, again, if there's sufficient public pressure, maybe a bad apple. Portland recently had a, a neo-fascist collaboration scandal with the police. And the person who was responsible for those communications was not fired, but demoted. Very often, that they are, if they are fired, they go on to police elsewhere. The police union arbitrates and keeps fired officers from being fired. Um, this is a very common occurrence, is that the city will actually fire someone and the officer will be reinstated through arbitration engineered by the police union. There's rehabilitation moves for image, right? Trainings. In the wake of the neo-fascist scandal here, 
the entire police force had to undergo, undergo an hour of white supremacy awareness training. I don't know what that means when the captain of the robbery division is a certified neo-Nazi. It's unclear, you know, what happened to him? Well, he retired. I don't know, he's got full pension. Uh, implicit bias trainings, de-escalation trainings, cultural proficiency trainings. None of this reroutes the primary core training of police officers. Um, technocratic fixes. Back in the 90s, that was mobile digital terminals, uh, typing in what you're doing as you're doing it. Uh, now we talk about body-worn cameras, shoulder mics, image rehabilitation. You've got to make it look as though you care. So very often these folks are tapped for leadership positions, or as this photograph suggests, right, there is um, a photo op in order to make people look good. Um, right after this photograph was taken, several hours later, um, tear gas was deployed, rubber bullets were fired. You know, what does the kneeling mean? It's unclear. It means image rehabilitation. Um, and then, you know, the biggest thing probably is community policing, officer-friendly tactics, coffee with cops. There's a community unit, bureaucratic reorganization, community police meetings. And as we've seen, a lot of this ends up being window dressing. So in talking to one of the community policing officers in LA, you know, I got him, I tried to ask him five different times, um, what does accountability mean? What does it mean to be accountable to the community? And every time he gave me a different answer that had nothing to do with community, right? Oh, we have an inspector general. Oh, there's uh, an internal process of discipline. Oh, there's this. Oh, there's that. What I finally got him to sort of work his way down to was this. We really try to work on community engagement because I need voluntary compliance. We need voluntary compliance. LAPD and every police department needs voluntary compliance from the community because when we've lost voluntary compliance, we've lost control. And so that's, I think, the core of this is the legitimacy is important because you need voluntary compliance. That's, some cops definitely want to drive fast and shoot things. And there's definitely demonstrated alliance between organized white supremacy and law enforcement that goes back centuries. But I think the purpose of community policing is to give cover to some of those things, to offer up as a sacrificial lamb, advocates who will think that this affects their control of police methods and mission, and to maintain legitimacy. So officers like Smith can retain their control and induce compliance. I don't want to necessarily have the last word here. I'm going to turn it back over to Danny, but I do want to acknowledge our list of people who have been instrumental in doing this work. And some people I've kept, I've put on here, I've not put on here to keep, keep them safe, various activist organizations. Uh, but thank you all. Thank you. Yeah, I don't, I don't have anything else. Appreciate it though. Wow. Uh, Dr. Roussel and Dr. Uh, Dr. Gascon, uh, thank you so much for your presentation. It has been a pleasure for me to be able to uh, read your ethnography. And I want to just start in a time that remains a, a bit of a conversation. For everyone else, feel free to use the chat feature to be able to ask questions. And we did have one question, uh, which, which uh, Daniel responded to, and that is, was there a citizen oversight council in place for police in Lakeside? And um, uh, the response is that, uh, no, this wasn't an oversight council. It was a police uh, community police advisory board and that this was intended to be informal oversight. And I actually would maybe like to start by asking both of you a question. And it stems from the fact that this area of South LA that you're calling Lakeside isn't in a sense like a neighborhood or a community because it's been defined by the police. And I'm wondering uh, to what extent you saw some ways in which uh, residents who attended these meetings agreeing with 
So like this idea of this is the neighborhood or the community or openly sort of like challenging and sort of thinking about and in that context, thinking about neighborhood and community in, in a, a different way. Um, and as a result, maybe raising questions about how policing should happen in that part of South LA. I don't, I don't remember really residents questioning at, a, at least at this uh, like philosophical level what, what, what the department's vision of a community was. You know, there were times when residents' complaints went beyond the borders of the department and, the, and police just sort of felt like that wasn't their responsibility anymore. You know, they were like, go to the next division and talk to their captain over there. You know, that doesn't have any, anything to do with us. Um, there were instances in which mothers who had young, who had uh, sons who were gang, who were sort of gang involved or had been in the system, advocated for their sons, and and the and sort of spoke back against police treatment of those kids. But these were the same folks who were generally very pro law enforcement. You know, you wouldn't come to these meetings unless you felt comfortable in that space. Everybody who was uncomfortable, undocumented folks, uh, identified gang members, um, people who were who who had uh, a chronic uh, offenses on their record, you know, these folks would typically either not be welcomed or just wouldn't feel comfortable to come. So you, you don't really get a sense of the outer boundaries of community because all of those people are, you know, they're, they don't take part in the meetings. Yeah, just to add on to that, because that, yeah, for sure. The fact that Lakeside, the boundaries of Lakeside did not correspond to any naturally occurring community or whatever, doesn't mean there wasn't even official there. So in LA, there is the Department of Neighborhood Empowerment. And to just to paraphrase briefly, or to summarize briefly, like places that consider themselves to be a neighborhood can apply for money. And when we first got there, I think it was like $50,000. So like, it's actually a bunch of money to do neighborhood work. And what you have to do is write up a history of the neighborhood and, and define yourself as a coherent unit. So that overlapped. There was one, there was one or two actually in that division that overlapped with those, those, that geography. So like it didn't correspond in any meaningful sense to the division, but it was located within and around the division. And so, and what you'd see is a lot of the people who did some of the work of done, which again requires you to have a very high level of civic capacity you are the homeowners, you are the upper middle class of the neighborhood. You were, you were the, the, the people that run the place. They would often sort of swap roles occasionally. Mr. Palmer, if I remember correctly, uh, was one of the key figures in the, that the Danny talked about, but also was a, a neighborhood empowerment person. So there's that, you know, and it was just to Danny's point, it was always very clear that police got to decide who was the community and who wasn't. I mean, my, the first time I really, really noticed this was um, there was the grim, if you all have ever followed serial killers or whatever, um, the grim sleeper. Uh, I don't know, the first year, uh, criminology, whatever, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so he, he, he was called the grim sleeper because he um, had long periods between his spate of killings. So I think in the, in the early 90s, he, had a, he, he killed a whole bunch of people, had a long break, and then started up again. And so they were their wits end. They had um, a TV show in there. America's Most Wanted to film, you know, and they had a meeting dedicated to it. And the lead investigator was up there. And one of the questions from the audience was from a member of the family of someone who'd been killed. Right. And they were like, you know, what can we do to keep ourselves safe? 
a lot of people being killed are young women. How, you know, some people are getting really nervous. They're thinking about, you know, organizing for self-defense. Should we be doing that? And the officer's like, oh, don't worry. The majority of them have been in compromising positions. Mostly they're just prostitutes. And so it was very clear in that moment who mattered and who didn't matter. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at. I would like to follow up a little bit in terms of how the police basically created their community through these community police uh, um, advisory boards. And my colleague, uh, uh, I have questions from some of her students, and uh, they raised a question around training. And to what extent police officers receive sort of like specific training related to doing uh, community policing. But uh, in your ethnography, you actually mention training um, and a process that people have to go through if they want to become an official member of the Community Police Advisory Board. And so could you talk a bit about maybe training from, uh, from both sides of this, to the extent, of course, that you know about police training specifically in community policing, but also what the, uh, what the residents who wanted to be actively involved in uh, CPAB had to do. And of course, uh, I'm asking that in part because uh, this is a neighborhood that had both African-Americans, a neighborhood that had African-Americans and Latinx residents. And there were, are some issues around um, ways in which Latinx residents were disenfranchised from participating in CPAB that you, that you discuss. So if I can answer your first sort of question statement about how, how the department uh, created community, you know, one of the things that we found was that the department, that, that senior lead officers were, would go to businesses and then, you know, in their dealings with, with the business owner, a shopkeeper or something like that, um, they would have a conversation about security measures at the place and then they would invite them to become a member of the CPAP. You know, they would go to a church function and take part in that normally and do like, uh, you know, often, often police would do uh, presentations to clergy groups and they would invite clergy members to the meeting. You know, so they were like essentially inviting people who had like, they were like, is it called creaming or whatever? I mean, you're only choosing people who are at the, you know, like, like a select group of people. Um, so that's in essence how they created community. Otherwise, for the Spanish group, they essentially relied on the facilitator's personal networks. You know, he was a he, 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 he worked at the local high school in the PTA, so he knew a lot of the parents and families and, and, that, and his like bone tree was what the department relied on to get people into the building for the Spanish meetings. With respect to the training, I don't know, Aaron, do you want to you speak to that a bit? I, I do remember a couple of things. Uh, why don't you go ahead and I'll, and I'll follow up. Okay, uh, training, with respect to the, the civilians, it wasn't so much as training it was more that they had to go through like a formal background check and fingerprinting process, which for people who are undocumented, was extremely daunting. You know, Aaron and I went up to downtown, we got fingerprinted and it was nothing. It was like in the basement of a building. We didn't really think anything of it. But, but Latino residents had a lot of trepidation about for one, filling out an application that asked for identifying information. You know, they, many times they didn't have a social security number but you're asked to divulge that information. You're asked to divulge whether you're, whether you're a citizen or not. You know, you're asked to give your, your last known address. So all of this is information that if a government agency has, people assume that the federal government will somehow obtain. So there was a lot of fear um, on, that, on that end, but there was, no, there was no training per se. For police, I, I'm not sure that there was a whole lot of training either. I, I feel like 
officers were chosen to go to the community policing unit because they because officials you know administrators believed that they had they were more personable but it was there was like no formal process to assess that you know there was no there was no like lengthy training for a community policing official uh, at least at least from what i remember that that was not something that was very prominent in 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 lakeside I certainly never heard it discussed, and we were definitely not invited to any trainings. No. I, d I do remember, remember Fernie Fernandez goes from being a slow, then goes downtown and comes back a much more polished version yes. of himself. So I, I think he got some training in um, particularly public speaking. I think that's a big part of it, right? And the question in the comments here is, is, getting, is getting at some of this. I'm just going to read part of the question. You know, the, uh, it's amazing to watch the process unfold where new recruits are taught the language to protect and serve while simultaneously learning how to construct a denigrated immigration, sorry, a denigrated image of the community in order to control them. There are no skills provided to recruits about how to effectively speak with and engage with the community that also empowers them. I also hear about improved training, but there's less transparency. And as you mentioned, who are those people who even teach these courses? Yeah, um, there was, I, I, I sometimes forget about this, but there was a, a police academy for civilians that everybody in CPAB was intermittently required to go to, but that requirement would come down, you know, and it would become clear that maybe a third of the people had done it or maybe a quarter. And that would be a thing. Oh, we're going to, we're going to fix this. We're going to do this. We're going to get everybody done through. And then the captain changes out and everybody forgets about it. You know, it was never, a, it was formalized, but never actualized. And I just wanted to make a comment on the role of training because what I, one of the slides I didn't include uh, was community policing as um, training residents to be both um, prophylactic and sort of uh, asphyxiant. So the things that you're trained to do are to become eyes and ears. You're trained to bring information from the community to the police, right? You're trained if there's an officer involved shooting. You go out there and calm everybody and say, don't get mad about this. Let's wait for all the facts to come out. You know, and you're given tools to do this. We were in a meeting and one of the pictures we reproduce in the book is we were handed just a picture of a Tech-9 pistol held by a gloved hand over pine boughs. And the idea was that this was taken off of a suspect who was involved in an officer-involved shooting and thus demonstrating the danger. You know, but really it's just a picture of a gun. You know, so you're, give, you're given marching orders and instructions. When we were there in a different division, there was a shooting of a Guatemalan man who had a knife and so there was a lot of pushback from particularly the Latinx members of the community. And so what they were invited to do was to go through the, one of the police academy training videos. So you're like, here's how hard it is to be a cop. Play this video game and see how poorly you do Simulate. at shooting people. The simulator, yeah. Simulator. And so everybody walks out of there with, oh my God, this job is really hard. I'm really bad at shooting people, which is propagandistic because it's this thing plucked from a training and used to illustrate a point. So things like that were used strategically, I think. Well, if I can, if I can say one more thing, you know, um, here, here in Massachusetts, I'm, I'm a part of a, a state board that tries to, the police union basically wants to give college credit for having their officers go through the boot camp. And we're trying to figure out what classes line up and, and which ones don't. From my perspective, the way that I teach sociology policing class, there is no way someone coming out of a police boot camp could get any credit for my class. Part of the reason is because of the complete lack of attention that's paid to issues of diversity, um, issues of cross-cultural communication, 
um, issues of understanding, uh, you know, people's different mental health states. A lot of it is very processual about how to write reports and how to how to manage equipment on the on the on the force and and how to recite certain kinds of laws. But very few of it is actual actual like interpersonal communication training. Uh, so the one thing I would suggest for Dr. Dewey's question is so she sort of ends her statement by asking, based on what you're involved in with this research, how might officers connect with community members and not just key members of the public? And I and I and I would suggest that we need to take a step back further. Like what and so that, so that I and I so I could raise the question that what incentive do officers have to connect with members of the community? None. Right? The only way to, to make it worth an officer's while to connect with a member of the public is to rearrange the ways that they get paid, rearrange the ways that, they, that, that higher ups understand their value to the department and their value to the, to the community. We, we, in, order, in order to make an officer's uh, job impactful in that way, you have to reorganize the, the role of the officer in the community entirely. And then that, that, that stems back to not only the department's function, but the broader police function in the city government and in the state government you know, there's just broader questions at stake. And uh, Daniel, uh, the point that you um, uh, that you've just raised is one because it, it raises a question for me as I was reading your ethnography, and that is, how do the officers who show up at these uh, uh, CPAB meetings, how are they being viewed as being productive? Did uh, and for both of you, uh, did you see you know some sort of like clear examples of? Oh, here was an issue raised in in you know maybe at a meeting in in June, and in September or October, there was a very clear way in which uh, the officers could report back in in terms of the crime stats they would report and being able to say we have addressed this particular concern, because of course so much of policing uh, in terms of the organization is thinking about sort of like the officers and it's basically this idea of you are you are you are arresting people you are you are you know, issuing citations and community policing is a you know it's supposed to be a, a sort of like different type of engagement i'm showing up uh, at this event or at this program and i'm talking to people but you know if i'm uh, you know the chief of police if i'm a sergeant how do i understand that as productive time but I can understand an arrest as productive time. There's somebody who's now sitting in jail. Or I understand issuing, you know, a, a ticket has been issued to someone because that's something that can be documented. And so I would enjoy hearing from both of you uh, thinking a, a bit about uh, if community policing is going to work, how do we start to rethink, I mean, have departments rethink the value of what it is officers should be doing. I'll be real with you. Um, I Listen, I'm a police abolitionist, and I answer these questions from that perspective. Um, I think when people say community policing and, and they have a specific vision in their brain, especially people who aren't familiar with what police are and, and, and they're not, they don't study police, that vision is very often simply incompatible with what police do. When you're running a data-driven department, when you're invested in predictive policing, when you're invested in writing ticket quotas, you know, you're, police are situation escalators. It's amusing to me that they take de-escalation training. I have done de-escalation work. When I go to an event as a de-escalator, I wear very soft clothing. I don't raise my voice. I have no weapons. 
I keep my hands in, in sight at all times. My goal is to keep people safe by distracting them, by letting them, give, by letting them vent to me about their problems. That's de-escalation. When you show up with a badge and a gun and a command and control strategy, what de-escalation is possible, right? All of these things are incompatible with, I think, the things that most people want when we think about safety. So that, that's, that's my answer to that, to that question. Police are always investigating. They're always asking you questions to file things away in their brain. They're always capable of charging you with a crime. I went on a ride along and the first thing someone says to me is, hey, who do you want to stop? And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And they said, yeah, uh, well, he's riding his bike the wrong way on the street. Uh, this person, oh, look at that, they put a blinker on. Who do you want to stop? Because obviously that's what you're here for is to see how we do this. That same ride along, they decided they saw someone who looked sketchy and they pulled their, in a four-way intersection, they pulled their car to block off one entire street. Got the guy, stopped and frisked him. The computer wasn't working. They found a lighter and uh, a quarter. The, their computer wasn't working, so they waylaid him for an hour waiting for the uplink. In the meantime, somebody across the street was mad at them for doing that and yelled at them, and suddenly they're in their bladed stance with their, uh, their hand on their gun you know, and you're, you're at this moment, you're how many steps away from a shooting? Because all that started with this guy looks sketchy, my spidey sense tingled. That's the training. That's anyway. I, okay. Yeah, no, I think I, I may. Sort of building off of what, what Aaron was touching on, LAPD is invested in predictive policing. They are, they are more invested in being in sort of employing traditional law enforcement measures, being a very reactive department. 911 calls still frame the ways that officers understand uh, the nature of crime in the community from week to week and month to month. And administrators from headquarters all the way down to the department, to the division level, use those figures as a tool to beat officers for not performing enough. Performance, their performance measures are still very traditional. Arrest and clearance rates are, are sort of the primary measures by which to, to sort of understand how productive an officer is. Some ways to change that would be to things to, to sort of reorient it to things like community satisfaction. You know, to what degree is Officer Officer Krupke speaking to? No, I know I, I knew you were going to smile. Hopefully, no one else caught that. Um, <laughs> to what degree is the officer responding to one or, or a few people? I did. Oh no! Uh, to officers, uh, to, to the community members. Uh, perceptions of what what is crime you know are they are they feeling any safer by uh, you know by the officer's involvement you know those are the kinds of measures that, that you need to change to really if you're if you're taking a community policing strategy seriously you need to take into account the public's impressions along the way you know that's that's kind of what the department had meant for community policing that it was supposed to be a one of a thousand points of input that would shape police uh, police tactics but that has not come to pass Actually, I want to say something real quick. Police in Cook County are horrible. They do not know how to treat people with a mental illness. Um, I have a mental illness. I'm bipolar, borderline personality disorder, and anxiety. And they just do not know how to treat people. They are absolutely horrible. And they, and I was arrested um, because I bit a paramedic and I was overly medicated and from day one of the arrest, they were horrible to me. Um, they 
when I was arrested and I was going to jail, um, they, they did not use my name. They say, hey, big lady. And I'm like, excuse me? My name is Nora. Please address me by my name and I will do so to you. And they're like, well, watch it because you could get in trouble for that. I'm like, I don't care. You don't treat me like that. You do not treat a woman like that, let alone a human being. And I was really pissed. I told my lawyer about that and I was really upset. I told the judge. I got his badge number, his everything. No, I, I, think, I think that's absolutely right. You know, some strategies have tried to partner mental health officials with officers on ride-alongs. Um, ride They've done it with paramedics. Um, those things have yielded sort of mixed results, but it is better than an officer trying to handle those things on their own. Part of the problem is, is that the emphasis on policing at the current moment is all about security and control. You know, very little of it is actually public safety, uh, fear of crime, much of it is, is much more, much of it is focused sort of just sort of on, on, on maintaining control in a city rather than trying to understand a community, rather than trying to understand the public on their own terms. You know, the department, the department has its own set of rules and then they go into a community and they impose their rules on the ways that other people are living as opposed to trying to become a part of that community in the ways that by reaching out to, to, to people with, with, with specific, uh, with specific needs, right? And, and ways to reach out to folks that, that are more productive. Yeah, actually, um, I live in DuPage County now in um, Naperville, Illinois, and you could tell the difference between between police in DuPage County who get um, trained how to deal with mental illness and Cook County. It's unbelievable. I mean, they're finally doing the training in DuPage in Cook County, but it's taking too long. It's ridiculous. And again, I'm kind of skeptical of this, right? I mean, PPB, Portland police here, have been trained to the nth degree on everything all the time. Like the number of trainings they've had to go, on, to go through because of the federal consent decree and all the things that came down, right, is extensive. And I don't know if you guys remember the, the, last, the last big time Portland made the headlines was the Max attacks when a right winger stabbed and killed two out of three people. He stabbed three people and killed two of them. He had begun that interaction by harassing and threatening two black women. And these three people intervened and he stabbed two of them or three of them and killed two of them. The day before that, the day before that, he was doing the same stuff on the Max train. And a woman by the name of Demetria Hester got into it with him. And he threw something at her and she, and she told the transit cop. And she was like, listen, this guy assaulted me. He's a dangerous white supremacist. He's talking about having a knife. He's a dangerous guy. They arrested her, right? This is racialized also. Who gets the benefit of the doubt? You know, and when Jeremy Christian was sentenced this month, last month, you know, they call her as a victim to the stand and she proceeds to indict the state. They're like, she's like, listen, he's a bad dude, but th these, these people's deaths are on your hands because you didn't listen to the person who's telling you about what's going on. I don't know, this, this time last year, a whole bunch of right-wingers were coming into the town and beating up people who looked queer and trans. And 
you know, the first the, the first victim of these attacks didn't call the police, but someone called the police for them. And the thing that immediately happens is that they are misgendered and not believed. Oh, you must have fallen down some stairs, you you person who deserves mistreatment. You know, what happens? The community responds, right? We, we held a, a series of um, community defense trainings, you know, how to spot people. I mean, we had a whole bunch of things that we did to, re- to respond, but all that was without the police because you can't, we couldn't trust them to do the job. I want to pick up, and first of all, uh, Nora, thank you so much for sharing your experience um, and, and the bravery of, of, uh, of what you disclosed. I would like to actually pick up, Dr. Russell, on a point you made, and that is, um, and that's on racialization. And it's actually um, a question I want to turn to, to both of you. I mean, that is, how did residents and officers bring you into their social world? How did they racialize you? And I assume both of you speak Spanish, but I uh, I am not I'm not certain of that. Um, and so, to what extent was your knowledge and use of Spanish during the research? Was that ways in which it opened doors or potentially closed doors for you in relation to residents and and police officers? Yeah. So I mean, I, I'll say um, that because this was a a Black and Latino community where there was Black and Latino conflict, we had to sort of develop strategies along the way that would would allow us to to collect data. And one of the first things that I noticed was the ways that you frame and ask questions about race really sort of makes people bristle or have some kind of reaction. You know, being being a Latino and then asking officers how they got along with Latinos or black, uh, Black members of the community, you know, they would, they would like, especially white officers would like shift and, and like get like move in their seats and they make sure that they were standing up very straight and then it would measure their words. It would say everything very carefully, almost, almost as if like they were trying to give you like a canned answer. But and with residents, with residents, you know, with black residents, I didn't have a problem getting along with anyone. I, I got along with everyone really well. They invited us to barbecues. They invited us to funerals. They invited us to family events and things like that. Uh, both of us. But, but we did learn that whenever I would try and ask about Latino venting issues, then it would become a problem. Then, then residents would become less, they would, they would becoming, they would be less forthcoming, right? And Aaron, that, that's where Aaron's relationship with a lot of black residents really helped because he could ask a lot of, a lot of questions more freely than I could and get, get more candid answers than I could. And similarly, when we were talking to Latino residents, obviously the facility that I have with Spanish made it made my ability to build relationships with them much easier, including the, the sort of facilitator who's also Salvadoran, my family's Salvadoran, so we got along on that level. So those things kind of facilitated data collection, but I think our working together really got us a lot further than we would have had we been working on our own. So yeah, uh, I'd, love a, I'd love a whole lot to add to that. I just... Um... Yes, I don't. This book would not have been possible without both of us. Yeah, and as as someone noticed in the chat on there, it says you know, mistaken for being buddy cops. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of times when walking together, I mean, what else do you assume? Especially for me, but Danny also has kind of a build. You know, as Philippe Bougois put it in in uh, in his book on Spanish Harlem, you know, there's two roles for white people in some neighborhoods: junkie or cop. Or, or someone from the city. And I was not obviously a, a junkie. Uh, no, no offense to anybody there. Um, but um, yeah, so it was easy to interpolate me as a cop. And we learned sometimes that people had thought that we were undercover for a long time, including cops. You yeah, know, yeah. so we had to work hard 
to break that down with people we were really interested in talking to. And we, I mean, some people were easy. I mean, Daniel, you'll remember we sat down at that street fair and that woman comes up, it's like, you cops? And we're like, no. And we convinced her pretty quickly. And to the point when we knew she didn't think we were a cop because she starts telling us about how cops killed her brother. And you're like, okay, we clearly have reached a place where you feel comfortable with us as nuts. You know, so you can tell, you can tell people's levels of comfort sometimes. All right. Well, we have uh, we have reached four o'clock, and uh, at least four o'clock here. Um, and so I know it's uh, it's later for you, Daniel, there on the East Coast, and uh, and Aaron uh, uh, for you. You still have a, a little bit more of the afternoon ahead of you. Um, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to present aspects of your ethnography with us and to um, and to reflect on questions. I wish, of course, we had had more time uh, to dive into, into more aspects of the ethnography. I encourage everyone um, to read The Limits of Community Policing. Of course, for those, uh, um, those folks who are interested in taking my Police and Society class uh, in spring semester 2021, I'm going to be using this book as one of the texts for the class. So, um, uh, so uh, we have not sort of, I have not sort of finished engaging with this text. And I certainly look forward to um, hopefully uh, you know, future uh, communication uh, with, with the both of you. To everyone uh, who has attended, thank you so much for being here um, and for one of the first programs that the Sociology and Criminology Department here at Dominican University has, has sponsored through this format. I want to also, of course, give a shout out to Patrick uh, Serrano and to other folks at uh, the Dominican University uh, Performing Arts Center for all of the behind the scenes assistance uh, with this so that things ran incredibly smoothly. And for folks who have participated in comments in the chat, I, again, thank you so much, Nora. Thank you for uh, for for sharing your experiences as well. Greatly appreciate it. And please look forward to other events that the Sociology and Criminology Department will be hosting, and uh, that and other events that Dominican University will be hosting. Uh, so with that, I will wish everyone. Um, as good of an afternoon um, and remainder of the week as, as possible. Thank you so much. The schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Rey Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.